So, good evening, everybody. So, um, as I mentioned, as people have been asking a little more about the the question, the understanding the sense of self and what what that is and how to hold that from this perspective of this practice. So I thought I would give a little teaching um, from another classic Buddhist teaching on the three characteristics of experience or existence. So this is just another way that the Buddha spoke to as a way of understanding not just our experience, but the quality or the laws that influence or affect or maybe at the nature of our experience. And, um, and Vipassana practice particularly is oriented to understanding these three qualities. And um, because they are both characteristic of every experience and life and, and ourselves, and also to understand them and to live in alignment with them means that we uh, learn to free ourselves up from, from unnecessary suffering. <coughs> so listen up. and we've already explored one of them so we've explored the um, characteristic of unsatisfactoriness of dukkha of suffering and we know that intimately in our experience you've experienced facets of it in this retreat Um, how it particularly relates in this set of teaching Um, really comes about through understanding the next characteristic, which is the characteristic of of impermanence, of transience. That because we live in an impermanent, transient, and therefore unreliable, uncertain, undependable, uh, fragile existence, every experience, everything, every person, including ourselves, because they're subject to those laws of transience and uncertainty and unpredictability and uh, undependability are therefore unsatisfactory because they're unreliable. They're incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. If you think about it, anything in your experience, anything, doesn't quite do it. It does okay. Many things that are okay, you know, we put up with them. (laughs) But do they actually provide the certainty of satisfaction and peace that we long for? The Buddha said on his deathbed, he said, all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are impermanent with mindfulness practice. And that was his dying words to his students who were all around his deathbed. All conditioned things, all things in this world are uncertain. Therefore, he said, work out your salvation with diligence, with mindfulness. So kind of sobering last words. Um, But the Buddha didn't kind of, he wasn't one for sentimentality. (laughs) It's like, this is reality. Look at it, face it, find peace in the midst of it if you do that. He's not saying, it's all going to get better at the end. (laughs) No, you die. I once came across this newspaper article from the Independent newspaper in England. There's a picture of Prince Charles uh, visiting a homeless shelter in London, which there are many. And uh, as he was walking around and chatting with uh, people who were staying there one winter, uh, one of, the, one of the, the residents shouted out a nickname for Prince Charles from, from his childhood. 
and would have only known that nickname if he'd gone to the same very privileged, private, upper class uh, school, primary school, or middle school, I forget exactly what. And they'd been classmates together. They played football together, which is soccer to you. Um, and um, he, this man went on to be a successful editor, publisher, and through various set of m- m- misfortunate and circumstances, including alcoholism and losing his family and his, his business and his money, ended up on the streets. And here we have this amazing story of this man who, you know, from one perspective, had a lot of privilege and affluence and, and you know, good karma, you could say, was now on the streets in London with his old high school chum who happened to be the Prince of England. This is the nature of impermanence. It's an uncertain world. There for the grace of God go I. I think about that when I walk past homeless folks in San Francisco. So um, you might wonder, well, why is the Buddha speaking about this since it's so obvious? We all know things change. We all know things don't last. We all know things uh, transient to, to for, the, for the most part. He said to his monks, Oh monks and nuns, maybe you can possess that thing that is permanent, stable, that would stay just like it is for an eternity. Do you see any such thing or possession? And what did the monks say? Indeed not, sir. Indeed not. Exactly, monks, nor do I, nor do I, do I not see anything that is stable, permanent, lasting, including ourselves. So we all know this intellectually, this is not rocket science. We know things change. We look at our experience, we look at in the mirror, we look at our aging body, we look at each other, we look at the world, it's full of changing events seemingly speeding up and you know in terms of global events and whatnot yet we keep being tripped up by being surprised when things change a student told me this story a long time ago she went to the kala chakra uh, ceremony with the dalai lama in england many years ago which is a ritual based around partly around the impermanence permanent nature of experience. It's a 10-day ritual. It's very ornate. It's very elaborate. And at the end of the ritual, she was very moved and she went up to the big altar that was being created. She took some, some flowers, some roses from the altar and take them back to her altar back home to remind her of this beautiful ritual. And um, she got home, put them on her altar and, you know, and as flowers do, they start to decay and, you know, but they had a lot of sentimental value so she kept them as a reminder of the teaching. And then one day uh, she came home and the cleaner had vacuumed the cleaner, including these crappy old withering flowers that clearly (laughs) needed to be vacuumed up, having no sentimental significance to her. And uh, my student came back from home and she was mortified that this very sacred thing had been vacuumed. And so when her husband came back from work, she asked him to go through the vacuum cleaner bag (laughs) to pluck out the roses so she could put them back on the altar. And halfway through the dust and the mess, she's realized, oh, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. These dying dead roses, this teaching about impermanence, and I'm grasping onto clearly something that is rotten. Right? That's how much we don't get it. Right? We, we, it takes it, you know, we, we get surprised all the time, you know, particularly when we look in the mirror. And we say, wow, that's not how I look. That's not how I feel. Right? That looks a lot older than how I feel, for example. So we get upset. We get reactive. We get hurt. We feel victimized. We feel wronged when things change and, we, and, and they're not so uncertain and we like we, we get annoyed with our body when it ages and, and changes or with our spouse or our friends or organizations or our government or whatever it is you know i always laugh at myself I, I get attached to a particular piece of clothing that i wear all the time and then at some some point it gets a hole in it and i see the hole and like 
how can that be? You've let me down. <laughs> I take it personally. <laughs> so there's a line from the Mahabharata, a great Indian text. And it says, Oh, what is the most wondrous thing in the world? People seeing others get old and sick and die and thinking it won't happen to them. So it's, you know, it's hard to, to live with this truth because we live in a culture that's fixated around youth, fixated around trying not to age. Look at the billions and billions of ads and marketing and, and consumer products built around that. And, you know, we buy some of them because we don't want to age. In the same way, we don't see the transience of, of sense experience, which is why we start, you know, we're chasing every shiny object, because we keep looking for that thing that will have some duration. And we get disappointed. So then we start seeking spiritual experience, hoping that has duration, meditative bliss or something. Right? You'll leave the retreat hanging on to the pleasantness of the ex- retreat, and it will fade, sorry to say. So that comes back to, as we've been saying all along, it comes back to wise relationship. Can we, when we see the transience, we hold experience more lightly, more with more care, but not so gripped. Right? That famous Blake line from some poem of his: "You know, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy." Right. He who clings to a blessed moment does the, does the free life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Right. That's the essence of this whole teaching in that poem. It's a very profound uh, you know, four lines. He who binds to themselves a joy, who clings and grabs, does the joyful life destroy. He who is able to appreciate beauty and joy as it flies, which is always flying, and we're always running after it. <laughs> Does the winged life destroy? It lives in eternity's sunrise, right? We, we can experience the joy because we're not holding on to it. The sunset, or the beautiful conversation, or the greening hills, or the red-tailed hawk that's beautifully hanging out in our presence on the top of these buildings. Like we appreciate it. I mean, nature's a great teacher of that because it's so elusive, right? The light changes, the sun goes down, the moon rises, the bird flies away, the song fades, right? That, it, it, it's a beautiful teaching of transience. This is why it's such a great teacher. And, in, and knowing the transience makes us appreciate things. Like, um, like uh, we used to have... Uh, uh, silk flowers, you know, and they're kind of nice, but that's only kind of nice, <laughs> you know. When we have real flowers, we appreciate their beauty because we know they're fragile and they're transient. The very nature of them is, you know, fading before our eyes. So in our practice, one of the reasons we do this very intimate, somewhat microscopic practice of our inner experience is we get to see moment by moment by moment the transient nature of experience. Right? We sit and every moment or few moments things are changing. Sensations, feelings, thoughts, moods, perceptions, aching, ease, expansion, contraction, inhale, exhale, right? There's nothing stays around. It's a waterfall of experience. And when our, when our perception in meditation deepens, we, that, that capacity to see the waterfall experience actually in, grows. So we see, there are stages in deep meditation where we see the arising and the passing in each moment of experience. And it's just, it's like a flickering. It's actually more accurate. Our perceptual apparatus makes things stay more stable, but actually what's happening is the ceaseless coming and going impressionability of experience and phenomena. And so we get to know that intimately so it becomes 
moves from intellectual to visceral, we see this whole thing that seems kind of similar on the outside is just this mass of changing phenomena. And when we do that, it, it, it um, seeds an understanding of helping us to not look to that which can't provide satisfaction to provide satisfaction. This is from the Buddha. He said, on realizing some of this, he said, why would I, who am subject to old age, sickness, and death, seek that which is also subject to old age, sickness, and decay? Why do I not seek Nibbana, the changeless, which is not subject to change? Why do I seek that? If I'm subject to change and therefore a certain unsatisfactoriness, why do I keep seeking that which is similarly changing and unsatisfying? And this is a koan for ourselves. Koan is a, is a, is a Zen question, a riddle. So I'm not going to spend too long on that because I really want to spend most of the time talking about how this relates to our sense of self and identity. Because our sense of self and identity is also part of that transient universe. Nothing is outside of that law of transient. It's probably one of the few things that scientists, mystics, and humanists can agree on. That this world we live in is changing. Right, down to the subatomic particle, to the expanding universe. Transient. Right? There's not a lot else we can agree on but that. But that includes our sense of self, which feels not changeable. Well, it feels changeable and also feels kind of enduring in time. We feel like me all of our life, or all of our life that we can remember. It's like, here I am. And there I was, and there I'm going to be, and it's kind of the same, it's just me. (laughs) And I can call my mom and dad, and they'll confirm, yes, that's you. (laughs) And I'll look in the mirror, there's me. And, you know, I can look at videos and photos, there's me. So, um, you know, this is a very uh, interesting and elusive and deep topic, and it's also, uh, as, as mindfulness and Buddhist teaching and other neuroscience understanding about the nature of consciousness make it m- make more you know, entries into the mainstream culture, there's, it's, there's interesting ways that it's showing up. So this is from the New, York, New Yorker cartoon. There's a couple watching a TV program, and the, the, the caption is the TV uh, presenter saying, This week on The Amazing Race to Enlightenment, Jim and Susie... I can't read what it says. Jim and Susie uh, achieve right mindfulness, but will Buck and Candy be distracted by the relentless clinging to the self? (laughs) So, um, you know, here it is. Relentless clinging to the self. So, just like many things, when we turn our attention in meditation with mindfulness <laughs> to an experience, we see that it's not quite as it appears. As it appears, it's this beautiful line from the Buddha. He says, "That which we conceive is ever other than is so. That which we conceive is ever other than is so. In that, the concepts that we create about experience is never the experience. It's always an allusion to, a pointing to, in the same way that when we say me or myself, it's pointing to something that's very complex. There's not a thing that we can say, that's it. Right? We say, oh, this is me, right? It's like, well, what am I pointing to? I'm pointing to my chest, is that me? Is my rib there? My intercostal muscle, is it my heart? Is it my backbone? What are we pointing to when we say me here? 
So as you pay attention in meditation, you see that this sense of self isn't the same, right? Maybe you uh, came to this retreat really like gung-ho, like, okay, enlightenment of bust, you're the kind of enthusiastic one, you know, and then you, you know, it's first day, and it's like, this is suffering, this is suffering, I hate this, why am I here, right? And you take birth as the suffering one, right? And then over the days, energy picks up, and then suddenly you're feeling a little bit brighter, and you're feeling more confident, and I start to know what I'm doing, and and then you take birth as like the meditator, like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, I'm better than you over there. And then maybe you, got, you access some bliss and light, and it's like, ah, oh, now I'm the blissful one. Etc. Et we go up and down, right? These senses of selves expand and contract. There was, I was teaching years ago in Bodhgaya, which is where the Buddha attained awakening a long time ago, and uh, this young man was having a great time, deep meditation, very still, clear, bright, unusual amount of steadiness for, for some days and you know, and the, the ego kind of just likes that and it's like, mm, so he started to get a little, you know, like this kind of great and, and he started fantasizing, well, you know, this is a 10 day retreat and I'm, you know, after this I'm gonna go to Burma, I'm gonna ordain as a monk, you know, maybe I'll find a cave and I'll just, just this will just grow, I'll just be radiating, you know, it's like enlightenment is around the corner. And of course, all that thinking and planning and excitement got all agitation. So all that still, calm, steady meditation went out the window and he started feeling really kind of restless and agitated and not liking the way they were doing the retreat and why they were leading that and doing that. And he started hating the retreat and then he wanted to leave the retreat after a few more days. Right? He went from wanting to be a monk to leaving the retreat. Right? Because of the various sort of mind states and you could say senses of self that, that were stewing. So from the perspective of awareness, we, it's like we take a step back, we have the vantage point of seeing these, these varieties of identities, of selves, of positions coming and going. Right? They come and go ceaselessly, inflated, deflated, expansive, contracted, high, low, good, bad, positive, negative, pleasant, unpleasant. And so the question is, well, who am I in all of that? Which self am I? Am I the one who's feeling sad and lonely? Am I the one who's feeling happy as I'm hiking? Am I the one who's feeling confused in meditation? Am I the one who's longing for my beloved? Am I, which of these selves are we? The Buddha said, which is your true self? The self of yesterday, that of today, or that of tomorrow, for whose preservation you clamor? Which is your true self, your true identity? Where is the I that has continuity? We look at our cellular structure, our bodily structure. Is, Is this who I am? Is this the same body as I've always had? You know, when you go to the hairdressers and you get your hair cut, which I just did, kind of a little butchered, but anyhow, and I'm looking at all the, the graying hair on the floor, and, you know, when you look at the hair on the, you know, you, we spend all this time looking after our hair and pampering it and conditioning it, and then, it's, and this is my hair, and, you know, and we have a lot of identity around, you know, like if you have a bad hair day, it's a really big, you know, identity crisis, you know, it's... <laughs> And then when, the, when, it gets, when my hair gets cut off, it's like, oh, gross, oh, that's dirty, like, take that away. We see a hair in the sink, like, oh, gross, right? Suddenly we cease identifying with that as me, right? Or the dust in the air. You know what most dust is in the air? It's skin, your skin, 70% of it. This is our skin, we're mingling here. You know, so we skim, we smooth it, and we cream it, and we love it, right? But when we see the dust, it's like, gross. (laughs) 
So what is me? You know, we cut our nails. We love our nails. They're so beautiful. We get manicures and pedicures. And then when we cut them, again, it's gross. It's body, you know. You know, in retreat, we can see the. Um, I see. I, it, it's interesting, actually. That in th- th- when we wake up, especially if you're not in a rush, like here, hopefully you're not in a rush. Or you wake up before the alarm, before you have to get up. When we wake up, often, if, if our mind doesn't immediately jump in with anxiety and planning, we wake up. Sometimes we don't even know where we are. We're like, where are we? Takes a while. It's fuzzy, foggy. I'm sort of looking around. Oh, that's right. Uh, Spirit rock. Uh And we have it, the self hasn't constellated. Right? So it's kind of like very soft. It's why we love sleep, because the self, the identity, takes a holiday, you know, for however many hours you sleep. So when we wake up, it hasn't quite gotten together yet. And that's, so notice that if you wake up and there's that sort of soft, sweet, kind of slightly selfless zone. And then at some point, you know, maybe you look over the clock and you go, oh shit, I'm late for the meditation. <laughs> and suddenly that sense of self comes back. Oh no, what are they going to think? Is the teacher going to be there? Oh no, better hurry up. Oh, why are you always late? <sighs> right? Sense of self has taken birth as the one who's late, the one who's going to be judged, the one who might be criticized. <gasps> So we take birth as the afraid one or the anxious one. It's a painful state. And then we realize, oh, it's actually 440. (laughs) As you put your glasses on, oh, it's 440. Oh, we sink back in the bed. Bliss. (laughs) That whole identity suddenly just dissolves. And it's like, what? that's a just... You know, it's a mind fabrication. Like, wow, look at that. And then we relax in the sense of self that was so, you know, sharp and brittle and anxious as relaxes. Notice that. So, there, so I talk about the sense of self as a, like an accordion. It oscillates. gets very compressed when we're afraid, anxious, angry, lustful, you know, where the self wants something or doesn't want something. And other times, like resting in bed, napping in the afternoon, mm-mm, my favorite thing, or walking in the woods and just, or just sitting, watching the sky, the clouds, and you sort of disappear. And it's just like, oh, it's just, you're not looking at the clouds at that moment, you're just, it's just quiet moment. And then, you know, the bell goes, that bell. I said, oh, meditation. Oh, okay, I get, get busy being a meditator and looking spiritual and putting on my professional walk. And <laughs> <laughs> looking good. <laughs> looking really good. <laughs> right? Oh, did they notice me? Oh, I was really slow when I let it. <laughs> I'm thinking about breakfast, but I'm really looking good. <laughs> I got this down. Man. So, um, so, as you know, I spend a lot of time in nature, and one of the reasons that I, I like to be outside and I teach outside and lead retreats outside is because when we're away from our, you know, devices buildings, all the associations we have with me and my identity and stuff, and mirrors and all your gadgets. Right? When we, the more time we spend in nature, especially deep nature, the less reference points for ourselves. Because right? nature isn't selfing in the way that humans do. There's a few species that they, you know, dolphins and whales, they think, and uh, chimpanzees, that have some, that as far as we can know with our you know, rudimentary 
you know, analysis, have some sense of self-recognition. You put a, you put a mirror in a pool with a dolphin, and they'll check themselves out a little bit. Um, and if you put that in front of a dog, you'll just lick the mirror. Like it, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a differentiation around how much self-awareness and self-identity we have. But in nature, mostly, it's not selfing. It's not, you know, the, the oak tree is not like, hmm, look at me, bay tree. <laughs> Wimpy little thing. No, it's just being an oak tree. It's oaking, it's baying, it's grassing, right? They're verbs, and as, they, as the Hopi... Uh, tribe refers to. There's no nouns in the world or in nature. There's just there's treeing, there's grassing, there's skying, there's sunning, etc. And so as we immerse in nature, that sense of that self-referencing can soften, can quiet, and at times dissolve. And I imagine many of you know that experience. Partly why we go to nature or to the beach or sit on a mountaintop. Because we, we, we sort of, that, that self-preoccupation that drives us nuts tends to relax a little or dissolve completely for a while in the same way that it can in meditation quite easily as, as Lauren was pointing to earlier. Um, so uh, there's a poem that speaks to this beautifully. It's my favorite nature poem by Li Po, Chinese poet from the way back when, I think the 8th century or something. And he said, um, so he's meditating up on the mountaintop, so just visualize yourself up in a mountaintop, facing a mountain. And he says, looking up to the sky, he says, the birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. And we sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. I dissolve, the watcher dissolves, there's just experience, being, knowing, doing itself. No self, no other, no duality, just what's here. Okay? We sit together, the Buddha statue in me, until only the Buddha statue remains. We sit together, and my community in me, until only the community remains. We sit together with the morning frog song, until only the frog song remains. Right? This experience is accessible many times. And often we don't even notice. We don't notice the sense of self as dissolved because we're not looking for that. But it's often those times, you look back at some of the peak experiences you've had in nature, in music, in lovemaking, in creativity, in art, in you know, um, athletics, they're often because the sense of self is dissolved and it allows a deep immersion and connection and richness and beauty. So I have to read this other translation of Lipo because um, it's interesting and it one points to, the, to be wary of translations, including all Buddhist teachings are translations and so one has to hold them lightly. Um, and... Um, with any translations, because a lot is missed. So here's another translation. All the birds have flown up and gone. Lonely clouds float leisurely by. We never tire of looking at each other, only the mountain and me. (laughs) Right? Same poem completely misses the point of the poem. If the, of course, if the early version is correct, which I'm assuming it is, because it's a deep. <laughs> but we sit together, just me in the mountain, right? That's very different, right? The sense of self is very present. I love that. And as that sense of self softens, becomes permeable, becomes less rigid, we start to feel more ease in our lives, more spaciousness, less self-consciousness, less trying to prop up a certain personality or identity because we see it's somewhat illusory, it's transient. It's not who we ultimately are. So I want to talk about different ways that we, there are many ways that we 
the sense of self constructs itself. And I just want to talk a little about that word construction. So when we first come into this world as a baby, there in, in, in our cognitive structures, there's no sense of self. There's complete immersion, or, or um, I can't think of the word, uh, oneness, but it's not that word, uh, with mother. There's no sense of dis- differentiation. And that grows by about six months, there's a much clearer sense of uh, duality of you and I and, and the world reinforces that this is your name and you are a thing and this is yours and so we start to construct a sense of self and identity through words, through images, through being reinforced by culture and family and people and so it becomes a, a, a cognitive self-image. Right? So identity, our sense of self is a constructed image or idea that we build, o- we build on over time. So by the time we're 20, 30, 40, 50, it's a very, you know, solid construction right? that feels very real because we've been reinforcing it every moment in the day, the default mode network, the ruminative brain is constantly wrapping around this sense of identity and stories and narrative and history and future, etc. And so when the Buddha says this, this being is not self, he's not saying this body doesn't exist. He's just saying the construct that you make about it as me and mine and myself is just that, it's a construct. The sense of identity is constructed. Right? Who we are cannot be reduced to a concept, an idea, or an identity. Much more complex and multifaceted. So one of the places we identify most is with the body. This is me. This is my body. It's clearly not your body. It's my body. Right? Nasruddin, the, the uh, Sufi crazy wisdom teacher, goes into the bank and goes to cash a check. And the cashier says, uh, do you have some ID? And he's like, he starts ruffling through his pockets and can't find anything. Pulls out a mirror. Yep, that's me. (laughs) You know, we look in the mirror every morning. There I am. Maybe not like it, but there I am. But if we pay attention on different levels, is can we really say that this is my body? Right? We now know from biology and the life sciences that least more than half of our body is not even human. It's the microbiome that's made up of billions and trillions of cells and viruses and bacteria and all very necessary for our functioning. Right? Is that me? Is that microbiome me? It's living within this body for sure. But can I say it's mine? And this body has a life of its own. It has organic life has this amazing capacity. Like the way that we replicate ourselves, our cellular, our most, most of the cells in the body replicate themselves. We, I forget the number, did I write it down? We, um, every day we are recreating 70 billion cells. No wonder you're tired at night. That's a lot of work, right? Killing off and, and reproducing those cells, right? This, the stomach lining reprodu- changes every five days. This part of the stomach that's in contact with food every five minutes. Isn't that amazing? Are, are we growing new liver every five weeks? Right? It's wild. Are we doing any of that? The, cell, the, the skeletal structure, as dense as it is, grows back every seven to ten years. Wild. Happening by itself. And then, we, we, then the, the, the thought, the I thought arises and says, well, this is my body. This is my foot. This is my stomach. This is my heart. Right? But is it really mine? I mean, it's a convention. It's clearly mine over here and not your leg over there. Right? We, that would get confusing and problematic. <laughs> 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 Give me your arm. <laughs> get off, it's my arm. 
Right? So there's a value to that convention, that construct, mine and yours. Right? But can I, does it really have ultimate truth? If this, as the Buddha says, if this body was really mine, if we tell it to do something, it would do it. If it was really mine, we would have control over whether it dies or not. No, we don't. So from the perspective of awareness, when we pay attention, we see this body is just a mass of conditions, like the elements as an example, like skin, flesh, bones, like many other elements, processes happening by themselves. We happen to be witnessing to it or embodying it, whatever the we is, whatever the I is, but is it really me and mine? When you're present to someone who's dying, and particularly when you're present to them uh, after they've died, and you're looking at this body that's now um, a lump of meat that's cold, flesh and bones, it's very obvious that the person that we knew and loved is not in that body anymore. So what does that mean? It's mysterious. So the second uh, area that we um, very closely identify with ourselves is our emotional life. And we're exploring a little of that today. We've, we take our emotions, and I think perhaps more than at the Buddhist time, I think as, uh, well, I'm, I'm clear that as, as the rise of humanism has grown, um, in the last you know, one or two hundred years, the centrality of emotions and feelings as being paramount have become very intertwined with the sense of identity. What I feel is who I am. What I feel is mine. What I feel has paramount importance. And, you know, beware if you ever step on anybody's feelings because it's a direct affront to themselves as a person, as an identity, as who they are. So, and we of course all have our emotional habits and tendencies and and we have grooves and pathways that we tend to be more familiar with and as those become uh, familiar and sort of ossified or rigid, we tend to think of that as who I am. We ascribe our identity as as being a happy person, or as a calm person, or as an equanimous person, or as a reactive, angry person, or as a sad and depressed person. We we take that emotional information and we build an identity around it. So we try to make that distinction in the practice rather than claiming the emotions, oh, now I'm sad, now I'm happy, now I'm open, I'm closed, just noticing, oh, sadness is here, joy is here. We see it as, as arising out of conditions, sometimes that we help create, other, often it just motions come and go. Like this morning, did you wake up and decide to feel depressed, <laughs> or sad, or bored, or lonely, or did you just wake up that way, or grumpy, I woke up grumpy this morning, <laughs> right? I don't think I'm a grumpy person, but grumpiness happens, right? Due to conditions, in this case, lack of sleep. <clears throat> All right, so I'm going to read you one of my favorite cartoons, which is an example of how we um, uh, create a painful identity through our emotions and through our thoughts. I'm going to talk more about thoughts in a minute. So it's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. <laughs> And it's how we, and how we, well, you'll just see it, I'll just read it. So the first caption, she's looking at, this person's looking at us, think about someone who's winning, a winner. She said, and the caption says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. And the second one is, examine your face and look closely in the mirror at the flaws. Third, it's a popular meditation habit. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. (laughs) This is, you know, again, how we construct a sense of identity around regretting and being wrong. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. (laughs) Right? All right. 
I'm now just, I'm, you know, I'm the disappointing one, right? We just had Thanksgiving, right? It's very fresh in your memory, probably. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. Love you. <laughs> she's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's saying, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, resign yourself from believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. And because you always will feel that way, that's who you become, right? This disappointing person or whatever the story is. There was a car on a license, the license plate on a car in the next town over from here. And I never quite got why they put it, but it seemed like it was part of this sense of creating identity. And the license plate said, number one loser. (laughs) And I thought, if they really believe that, that's a really painful identity. Could be that they're in Weight Watchers too, but, or something like that, which made me feel a little better, you know. S- you know, there's other things you can lose, you know, that's a good thing, but maybe they felt like they were a loser. Like, what a painful identity to take birth in, right? Think about the stories that, or the identities that you identify with and take birth as, right? Maybe you're the bad child, you know. I was the black sheep in my family, of using that phrase. Um, you know, or maybe, you know, you weren't considered very bright at school, so you were the dull one in the family, you know. Very painful identities, right? Any identity is painful because one, we believe it, which is a mis construing of who we really are and two we try to make reality conform to that belief so we 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 make ourselves be stupid or look stupid or be a loser or we set up ourselves up to fail so can we have the space that comes with awareness to see whatever emotions and feelings however solid and uh, enduring they may be they're not actually who you are they're frequent visitors at the table. So another area that we uh, perhaps most get caught up around the self and identity and construction is around our thoughts. And you've probably seen many ways this week how you create you know, this sense of self and identity. Being a good meditator or a bad meditator, or the one who's always late or the one who's sad or lonely or whatever the story is. So there's a beautiful teaching um, from the Buddha that I'm not going to go into it so much, but just a part of it. It's a teaching he gave to Bahia where Bahia, want, this young man, wanted to understand. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in, I have a sense of urgency. I want just the kernel of your teaching. And he pestered the Buddha and the Buddha finally said, okay, I'll, here it is. He said, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the cognized, there is just the cognized. Seeing, hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. When you see that there is just the seen in the seen, the heard in the heard, the sensed in the sensed, the cognized in the cognized, you will therefore understand that you will you're neither here nor there nor in between, basically. That, that when, we ret- when we can see or meet experience in its raw elemental data, which is what you're doing here, sensing, seeing, hearing, thinking, right? Just seeing these processes happening. All the rest, all the stories and ideas and identities, how I'm doing and how I look and how people like me or not or how I'm perceived or what my progress, all that is extra. And so we make reality very complicated out of this simple raw data of experience. And of course there's a need to, to, we can't just live with that raw data of experience, but to be mindful of what we construct out of that and how it becomes the root of suffering. As the Buddha said, mind is the forerunner of all things. With our thoughts, we create the world. With our thoughts, we create the sense of self. And of course, we create the sense of self, the story about others. 
How many people have you, how many stories have you made about all these different selves? And projected a sense of self. This person's, you know, really deep meditator, and this person's really, you know, happy, and this person looks really sad, and you know, and this person must be, you know, who knows? You create these stories, and we believe them to be true, because we believe the stories we tell ourselves all the time. And of course, when we get to end silence, which we will, some point, before you go, you'll get to see. Oh, this person that I thought was, uh, you know, an artist is a molecular biologist working for NASA, you know, <laughs> working on, you know, some space probe project. Wow, that's really different. Changes my Vipassana romance a little bit. <laughs> Not sure I can date a molecular scientist. I don't know, maybe, or maybe that's hot. I don't know, who knows. So I want to read this piece from Byron Katie, who um, is, a, is a wonderful teacher and mostly pinpointed her work to looking at the belief structures in the mind and, and the stories that we make. She says, mind gives worth, birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning and yet inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. Um, when you're in dreamless sleep, is there a world? Not until you wake up and say, I, when the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no problem. There's no attachment. It's just... A great movie, get the popcorn, here it comes. I live in completion, all of us do, though we may not realize it. I don't know anything, I don't have to figure anything out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere, and now I exist as a don't know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. So, so to be mindful as we, as we, particularly as we're Cultivating mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of thought, to notice the stories, the ideas that we create, that we construct. This is from Mark Twain. We do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. Biographies are but the clothes and the buttons of the person. The biography of the person themselves cannot be written. So the biography is the outer clothing, right? Not the essence of who we are. Who we are is fathomless, it's nameless, it's beyond words, it's beyond concepts, beyond limitation. We're boundless, mystery. So the Buddha called this I-making, my-making, called Sakyaditi, self-view the way we make these views about the sense of self. And if you pay attention in your meditation, most of it is sakyaditi, most of it is you're just running a story. Well, I'm gonna get up from the meditation and then I'll walk to my favorite walking place. Better not be anybody there, because that's my walking place. I really like that place and I really feel good and it makes me feel really mindful and and then we just go on and on and on. And then I'll, I mean, I'll write a note to the teachers because I don't know about the schedule. It's not, you know, and, and I'll go to my room and I'll tidy my room and, you know. Well, I shouldn't go to my room because that'll make me look bad. So, and I want the teachers to think I'm a good yogi. So, you know, I'm going to just do the practice, follow the form, you know, be a good person and, you know. And, and it's just, it's just, we just ramble on and on about ourselves. <laughs> it's kind of humorous. Except it's annoying. <laughs> and it's painful. And we take it to be real. And that concept I referred to this morning, papancha, the proliferating mind, mostly what you proliferate about is ditti, not ditti, it's a mana prapancha, prapancha about the sense of self, you know. So, um, you know, so how it goes like this, um, 
uh, actually that, that um, yeah, I'll tell you a story in a minute. Um, so, um, you know, so we're walking through the doors here, and because we're not really looking at each other, you know, the doors sometimes kind of, you know, just kind of slam in your face, right? And in, in everyday life, that would be like, that would be a bit rude or a bit insensitive, but, you know, we're sort of just doing a thing, and, you know. And, you know, one morning, you know, maybe we're feeling a little sensitive, a little vulnerable, Maybe, you know, the person on our yogi job kind of looked at us a little like, mm, like you know, maybe they don't like us, I did something wrong. And we come up to the meditation and the person in front of us doesn't see us and the door slams in our face. And it's like, how come no one ever sees me? How come I always get neglected here? You know, we make this story about, I'm sure they don't like me. I'm sure they knew I was there, they just did it deliberately. They probably had no idea. They were lost in their own papancha about their own work meditation. <laughs> Or we pass the teachers, you know, walking up the hill or down the hill, or someone you project onto, you know. And, um, you know, maybe you thought they might smile at you and they looked really stern and grumpy because they hadn't slept well. But anyhow, and, <laughs> and you thought, oh, they know I missed the morning meditation. Shit, they know, they think I'm a terrible meditator. They wouldn't let me back. And we create this whole story, like, and it feels so real. That's what's so painful about it. It feels so real. <clears throat> I was on a long retreat uh, with a friend of mine, teacher here. And there was this one yogi on retreat who was really noisy. Like, just had, you know, swishy pants, swishy coat, swishy hair. <laughs> just, and we'd walk in late and sit down, you know, rustle, just, it was just really... <laughs> delightful in his in his bigness, and uh, my friend's doing this walking meditation, insight meditation society on the east coast in the bowling alley, which is this long rooms, very quiet, and he's, he does this very slow walking, and this guy bundles down, you know, trunches along, makes lots of noise, coach flying, and my friend said to himself, he said, "At least I've got less self than him." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the hubris of the mind, right? You know, you know and, and of course, with a sense of self, we're always comparing. And this is, the, this is the, 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 whatever it's called, of conceit, right? We're always, com- we come into the room and, uh, you know, there's only one person meditating. And, and so we come in early, so and we sit and we're like, feeling good about ourselves because we're early for a change. Everyone comes in, you make yourself, you know, sure you've got your best professional meditation posture on. You know, and you think, yeah, you know, I'm special because I've been meditating longer than you lot of just coming in, slackers. <laughs> so we're constantly measuring, am I better than, am I worse than, right? And this person who was there before you when the bell goes to end the meditation is still there. And you thought you were better because you know, all these other late people came in late. This person doesn't move. They sit through the next walking meditation. You're like, damn, move. <laughs> You're making me feel, you know, inferior. And my sense of self doesn't like that, damn it. <laughs> so, so notice this very unsettling, better than, worse than, same as. Even the same as is, is a form of comparing, form of conceit, and it's always unstable because there's always people <coughs> changing their position. So, a couple of things to close. Um, uh, this is from Wes Niska, who's a delightful teacher here and dear friend and, um, very, and, a, and a stand-up comic. So he's talking about the personality, which is one's sense of self or another, another way of phrasing it. He says, one suggestion is to regard your personality as a pet. It follows you around anyway, so give it a name and make friends with it. Keep it on a leash, and when you need to let it run free, let it run free. And when you feel it's appropriate, train it as well as you can, and then accept its idiosyncrasies. But always remember that your pet is not you. Your pet has its own life and just happens to be in intimate relationship with whoever you are, whoever you may be hiding there behind your personality. Mm 
So what would it be like to be free from the shackles or the confinement or the belief in this identity, this sense of self? In those moments when we may have felt free from that, in whatever context that may be, we can sense how spacious, how open, how free that can be, how actually intimately connected, because there's not some body busy over here feeling separate from life, but actually we dissolve. It's a beautiful line from Nisargadatta, a great Indian Advaita teacher who said, um, uh, wisdom tells me I am nothing, right? empty, empty of self. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Right? That's actually our true nature. Wisdom tells me I am nothing, I am empty. Love tells me I am intimately interconnected, not separate from all life. And between the two is a dance. A haiku poem that expresses how this might be felt by the poet Ryokan, beautiful, beloved Japanese hermit, monk, poet. He lives this extremely simple life, simple bamboo hut, very few possessions, you know, a rice pot, robe, meditation mat. And one day he gets home from his meanderings, uh, wanderings, and uh, a thief's come into his hut and stolen everything. But he still has his uh, calligraphy brush that he carried with him in his, in his scroll. And he writes, the moon at the window the thief has left behind. The moon at the window the thief has left behind. So next time you get broken into, <laughs> notice if the, the thief has left behind the moon or the sun, or the sky. That's freedom, right? That you can feel it. That's just someone who's let go, gone beyond. So I'm going to close with a practice, a very short practice, just exploring this sense of self. So just get yourselves into meditation posture. Close your eyes, and I'm going to repeat a series of words, and I want you to repeat the phrase silently to yourself, and I'm going to repeat the phrase several times, and each time I repeat the phrase, I will drop off the last word. So it goes like this. So, I am a meditator sitting here. So, you just repeat that silently to yourself. I am a meditator sitting here. And you feel that because that's because you are. Then, I am a meditator sitting. I am a meditator. I am a. I am. I am. I. Now take away the I.
So we'll have a, about 20 minutes for some walking or if you'd like to stand in here or whatever supports your body. And then we'll come back at nine for some chanting and some meta practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.